right through the peak of the automobile age in America, people, especially moms, were out in streets demanding the possibility for their children to enjoy the outdoors and enjoy this, their local streets safely. In the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, moms all over America were putting lawn chairs across streets illegally, blocking traffic and saying, we're not going anywhere until we get slower traffic, speed limits, enforcement, stop signs, traffic lights, whatever it takes to slow these cars down for the sake of our kids. And I think this is a really important thing because I grew up hearing that everybody welcomed car domination, that this is what everybody in, in, in America really preferred. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity within our communities. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I just want to send a special shout out to our Patreon supporters and donors, because without your contributions, we could not make this content happen. And we're excited to say we brought on two new patrons just this past week. If you'd like to also contribute, just click on the links in the show notes or head on over to our website at activetowns.org. Your commitment makes conversations like this one with Peter Norton possible. So without further delay, let's dive into that discussion. Hi, this is John with the Active Towns Initiative, and I am absolutely delighted to have with me on the Active Towns podcast, Peter D. Norton, Associate Professor of History from the Department of Engineering and Society at the University of Virginia. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, John. First off, it's really good to connect with you here live. We frequently interact passively, mostly in the world of social media via our active towns and fighting traffic uh, social media presence. I just hope you and your loved ones are all safe during these rather challenging times. And I should pause to mention that we're actually recording this episode on Thursday, April 23rd, 2020, and we're in the midst of a rather interesting and challenging historical period in, in regards to COVID-19 and the pandemic. Uh, where are you at currently? And here's the loaded question. How are things there? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. And as a small city, the adjustment here is less striking than it might be in a, in a big city like, you know, New York or Chicago. But of course, the vehicle traffic is, is way down. It's very much like people are seeing in other small cities across the country, where there's still quite a bit of activity, still quite a bit of driving, more cycling than ever, and a lot of people working from home. So it's a very typical experience in my impression. And it's a college town and you are a university professor. You're also the author of Fighting Traffic, one of my favorite books, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City. Uh, that was published in 2008 by the MIT Press. It's been around for 12 years now. Have you been surprised by the staying power of fighting traffic because it seems to me like it just keeps getting referenced over and over and over again. Well, I've been very surprised. I, I you know, I'm a, a, like you said, a university professor. I didn't expect it to get much of a reaction beyond academic life. So it's been very gratifying to, to find that, that it's spoken to some people besides that, because, you know, I, I, at heart, I'm a, I'm a sustainable, healthful mobility advocate in the disguise of a professor. So that, that's been very gratifying. And also very gratifying is that there have been trends toward walking, cycling, better transit, more active and healthful and affordable mobility that just exceeded my expectations at the time that the book came out. Yeah, it's we've been in the midst of an interesting period of time, you know, building up to this pandemic and this inflection point is is rather interesting to to be observing. My area of expertise is really how to encourage healthy behaviors and healthy activity and how the built environment influences that either positively or negatively. 
What's happening on the streets there in, in, in Charlottesville? Well, when I see what's happening here and compare it to what I'm reading about online, uh, I can't say that Charlottesville is setting any uh, great examples. It's not, not a leader in, in this regard. It's not a criticism. It's just to say that it's typical. So I've been following with interest some of the bolder experiments, mostly in larger cities, where you're seeing streets sometimes turned over to active mobility. You're seeing uh, pop-up bike lanes. You're seeing people who depended on the bus trying to get to work by bike. Sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a hardship on, on them, of course. But I'm, I'm still waiting to see this transformation here. I'm, and I, I'm hoping people besides me here are paying attention so that we can learn from, from the example setters around the country and around the world. Yeah. In college towns, and I've spent a fair amount of time in uh, Boulder, uh, which is obviously a, a college town, and it seems to me that in general, college towns tend to have a, an environment where the streets are a little bit more conducive to activity, people activity. Would you say that's the same uh, in your neighborhoods and in your area? Yes, it is in in a modest way. So if if uh, you're near the university part of town, you are seeing less vehicle traffic, more walking, including walking in the street. There's a there's a main road that goes right through the college campus here, and uh, one, half of it has been closed off to vehicles, so that there's more people walking there. Although actually, the the population where I am has declined because so much so much of it was students. And students are still in class. They're at the end of the semester now, but they're practically all connecting remotely. Uh, I mean, there are some who are still here in town, but they're not out as much as they used to be. So although the possibilities are greater for active mobility right here in Charlottesville, some of the population that would most take advantage of that is also away. Yeah. So a good portion of fighting traffic really was that historical account of motordom and how motordom came to take over our public realm and the socialization that needed to take place. One of the things that I'm sort of reflecting on, uh, not only on what I'm seeing here in Austin, but also, as you mentioned, what's kind of happening uh, across the country and really around the globe is that we may be in the midst of uh, an inflection point of a type of socialization, almost like a re-socialization experiment, if you will, of our streetscape. Why don't you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it, it's possible. Um, one of the hardest parts for me about sort of proposing alternatives to the status quo is helping people have a sense of what they're gaining because it, it, immediately people think about what they're losing right and this this makes it hard to get uh, uh, an alternative uh, idea across because as soon as people fear what they're losing it's hard for them to open their minds to what they may be gaining and so one of the beautiful things about this very very difficult time is that people are actually having a chance to experience what a less car dependent uh, city could be like. And so that's that's very encouraging. I, I can describe it to them, but that's nothing like them noticing just how much less stressful it is to walk when you don't have to constantly be alert to, to vehicles every everywhere all the time. And so some of those opportunities are happening, but it's not uh, a slam dunk by any means because we have seen this kind of thing before. So I'm old enough to remember as a kid when we had the OPEC oil embargo, I was 10. And it looked like some of these things, some of these kind of trends were happening then as well. And then the oil prices went down and the driving went right back up again. So it's, it's tough. We, we're getting a chance to see what less car dependency, what more active mobility can look like. But it's going to be an effort to to keep that momentum going. Yeah. It also is interesting because we see this reinforcement of 
not only are they experiencing the streetscape with less motor vehicle traffic and, and all the negative externalities that are directly associated with that, but they're also getting that, that, that positive reinforcement of the ability to reconnect with others. Like we're seeing, you know, people really reconnecting with their neighborhoods and with their neighbors, and it's drawing people out of the homes. So that's a really interesting experience that they're that they can grab onto. The other is like this really powerful external factor of they're seeing a decrease in pollution, both both noise pollution and air pollution. So to your your point, it's it's less about what they have lost, which one of the things that people have lost during these really, really difficult times is potentially their income, potentially a certain amount of you know freedom of of movement, you know, going out to restaurants and socializing in that realm. So it, yeah, it, it, any additional thoughts or reflections that you would have along those lines? Well, you, you make a very important point that people uh, can recognize what they have to gain within their own immediate environment, their neighbors, their street, their local, their local neighborhood, where people, as you, as you note, John, are rediscovering how much they have just from their front porch, on their front sidewalk or curb. Because, yeah, people are, are uh, in my own local neighborhood, I'm seeing much more walking much more sitting outdoors. It helps that the weather has been beautiful, you know, but actually a, a little bit of that is the diminished emissions and, and pollution that makes it more pleasant to be outside too. And the lower noise as well, as you said. And this, this is a, a, a wonderful thing because uh, we, we have gotten used to in the, the automobile age, getting in the car to go to pleasant outdoor settings and that has the effect of making the immediate local setting sometimes less attractive. So we're, we're rediscovering, to some degree at least, how much there is locally, immediately outside our front door. And that's a big deal. Now, you mentioned uh, the OPEC uh, oil embargo of the 1970s. And that also coincides with some activity that, that happened in many international cities specifically i'm thinking of some of the the reaction to that but also to other trends that were happening in the netherlands uh, of that time uh, stop to kindermort and, and things of that nature where folks were like fighting to use that word fighting to uh take back their streets because they felt like they had lost something in the midst of this. And it certainly, we can't say that it was just the oil embargo. We can't just say it was just the, the Kindermort uh, action. There were many other societal things that were going on, but that was definitely an inflection point for, for that. And it fits that meme of that has circulated recently of Amsterdam wasn't always Amsterdam and putting up the side-by-side -side comparisons. What I love about your book is that the America went through some of those very same fights for the, the streetscape. Well, John, I'm glad you bring that up for a couple of, couple of reasons. One is I had the good fortune to be a guest faculty member in the Netherlands in uh, 2018. And that was a very eye-opening experience. And I think a model for the future. We don't need extreme high tech to solve all our problems. It's useful. But there's a lot of wonderful, low-tech, affordable things we can do right now. And I think they're really showing us how. But a second really important thing that I think we can take from that is that recently, you know, over the last year, I've been studying similar trends or similar fights, that's the right word, in the USA, where my book was really looking at especially the 1920s. But what I've found is that right through the peak of the automobile age in America, people, especially moms, were out in streets demanding the possibility for their children to enjoy the outdoors and enjoy this, their local streets safely. In the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, moms all over America were putting lawn chairs across streets illegally, blocking traffic and saying, we're not going anywhere 
until we get slower traffic, speed limits, enforcement, stop signs, traffic lights, whatever it takes to slow these cars down for the sake of our kids. And I think this is a really important thing because I grew up hearing that everybody welcomed car domination, that this is what everybody in, in, in America really preferred. And I have a, a problem with this word preferred. People will tell you, well, Americans prefer to drive. Well, people's preferences depend on what their choices are. And when their choices stink, you know, they'll, they'll take what they can get. And the alternatives to driving for most American communities are poor, and they don't have to be. Um, driving is actually a very expensive way to get around. We can give people cheaper and more sustainable and, and more healthful alternatives to driving. But one of the resistances to that fact is people will say, well, you know what, it's, it's a tough, tough fact, but it's a fact of life. People prefer, Americans in particular, prefer to drive. And what I'm finding is that that preference is not nearly so ubiquitous in our history as we've been you know, led to believe. Uh, right through the peak of automobile enthusiasm in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, people were struggling to keep places safe for pedestrians. Uh, we've heard about the protests against freeways and expressways through cities, and that deserves a lot of attention, and it's gotten some. But what we've forgotten about is lots of local efforts in practically every city in America to, to try to save some streets for pedestrian and bike-friendly uh, uses. Yeah. And it's rather interesting because this particular circumstance that we find ourselves under is a situation where because of the nature of the novel coronavirus pandemic, we are told to stay inside for the most part. And but we're also encouraged, hey, get outside, get some vitamin D, get some exercise, you know, keep your immune system up. And so we have this desire to connect with others while at the same time, ironically, being told not to connect with others, keep your distance. And so suddenly the undersized, the undercapacity of our walkways, of our sidewalks, if we have sidewalks in our neighborhood, I don't have sidewalks in my neighborhood, but we're seeking out space. And so we're moving out into the middle of the roadway. And we are seeing in many communities, many neighborhoods, exactly what you were just talking about, where moms are are taking on their putting on their tactical urbanism hats and taking you know control of the streetscape on their block to be able to give space for the kids to play learn how to ride a bike it's an interesting interesting moment it really is and and you make a really important point which is uh, what happens on streets is only partly the result of policymakers planners and engineers in state departments of transportation because a lot of it depends on on as you suggest what people feel compelled to do so you know if two people you know, let's say you're lucky and you have a sidewalk if people are coming from opposite directions and they need to practice a little social distancing one of them's likely to go off into the street or or a jogger may prefer the street to the sidewalk so that the sidewalk is still available to the pedestrians and so these behavioral patterns, right, can change norms in such a way that the policymakers will either have to catch up or be left behind. Because there's no reason why every single street has to prioritize motor vehicles. You can have streets where, to take the Netherlands example, again, some streets there accept motor vehicles, but prioritize other uses and treat automobiles as a guest. That's actually a, an official policy in the Netherlands. They have streets where automobiles are officially called guests and have to behave like guests. And that policy was the product of public pressure. And we're seeing some of these kinds of public pressure here now more than ever, as you indicate. And if policymakers are, are smart, I think, they will pay attention to these things because uh, policy that works is policy that follows what people prefer. 
Right. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the feet struts. So those are the motor vehicle as guest shared space that exists in the Netherlands and actually a fairly large percentage of the entire bicycle network within the Netherlands is designated as feet struts and other shared street combinations, including, you know, completely shared streets uh, like Woonerfs and things of that nature. And again, the whole point is, is the motor vehicle driver as guest, they they sort of defer to and stay behind and reduce their motor vehicle speeds, which doesn't necessarily get all the attention. Usually it's the protected, separated infrastructure that gets the attention. There's an extraordinary lesson here in what you have to say. The Netherlands is a very crowded country, and yet they found space for motorists, cyclists, pedestrians, and others. And one of the first objections you'll hear here, a reasonable objection, is that we don't have space to accommodate everything. And and so, you know, I'm sorry, but there's no room for a bike lane or something like that. And what's fascinating to me, having spent some time in Dutch cities, is that you will find uh, two-lane city streets with a full traffic lane on, I'm sorry, a full bicycle lane on both sides. And to make that work, in effect, the center lane is a one lane motor vehicle street going both ways, which looks crazy from a sort of conventional American point of view. So I watched this carefully and it's extraordinary how well it works. I think one of the the keys to success that they have modeled for us is to recognize the fact that street users are smart people. We talk about smart transportation sometimes as if smarts are only things that come out of artificial intelligence, machine learning, computers, and so on. But human beings are amazingly smart. And if you give them one lane of motor vehicle travel with two-way motor vehicle traffic, but bike lanes on both sides, people will find a way to get through there because we are adaptable, intelligent beings. And I think some of our transportation problems in the USA are attributable to an underestimation of how smart uh, street users as human beings are. Yeah, it sort of harkens back to uh, something the, the late Hans Monderman said, which is if you treat drivers like idiots, they'll behave like idiots. That's that's genius right there. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier technology. So I guess we got to draw this out and talk a little bit about the dialogue that had been happening and has been happening so much over the last 10 years, five years, whatever, is the, the autonomous motor vehicle technology. Gee, I haven't heard much about that in the last 60 days. Right. Autonomous vehicles have been presented to us over the last 10 years as a a sort of miracle cure for every ill. And this reminds me as a historian of how conventional automobiles were presented to us 80, 90, 100 years ago as a cure for every urban ill. And the the truth is that both autonomous systems, automated systems, and motor vehicles are all useful things. But the moment you see a tool as useful for everything, you're in trouble. I mean, imagine asking a carpenter, you know, which is the one tool you need for every problem? And of course, the carpenter will scratch ahead and say, well, I need a, a screwdriver for screws. I need a hammer for nails. And I think there's wisdom in that that we miss when we hear any one thing presented as the solution to everything. Conventional cars couldn't solve everything. It's not to say they're not useful for something. Autonomous vehicles cannot solve everything. And to be fair, walking and cycling alone don't solve everything. It's a mix. It's a balance. I'm amazed how much Rachel Carson's message in Silent Spring, her her book about insecticides from 1962 that opened people's minds to the cost of, of poisoning the environment, how adaptable her message is to our interest in healthful, sustainable, affordable, equitable mobility. Because her message wasn't every chemical must be banned. Her message wasn't here's the solution to everything. Her message was that an ecosystem is a balance of things. 
And urban mobility is like that. A healthful urban mobility system has uses for motor vehicles. It has uses for cycles. It accommodates walking. It's, it's adaptable. It's flexible. It's above all balanced. Rachel Carson's favorite word was balance. And I think we're still striving to find balance in urban mobility today. And paradoxically, COVID-19 is compelling us to look for a better balance. Yeah, and, and that integration of and balance of mobility systems brings me right back around to the Dutch. And uh, since you were you spent some time over there, you probably speak to the fact that it's it's not just that there is extraordinary opportunities to ride bikes; it's that there's an integration of all the different mobility systems. Yes, the, the, it is a system. It's not uh, just a mode of transportation. It is an integrated system. One of the deterrents for people here, say, taking the train is, well, I've got to get to the train station. And then if, if I drive to the train station and take the train to the next city, well, then I'm kind of stranded. I can't get from the train station to where I need to be. Well, as you know, in the Netherlands, when you get to the train station, uh, you take the train, you get off the train, there's a bike right there. It's called a public transportation bike, and it's integrated into the system. And you can just hop on that bike, go to where you need to go. You go back to the train station, leave the bike there. And that is considered part of the train network. So this is a real model of an integrated network. Yeah, in fact, it's the Ove Feats system, and it's uh, integrated with your transit card. So it's the same card that you use to get to that destination. So absolutely. Please pardon this very brief intermission in my conversation with Peter. I hope you're enjoying it thus far. In the second half, we look at what is considered normal from a mobility perspective, new technologies like micromobility devices, and the impact of motor vehicle speeds. But first, just a quick reminder, please subscribe and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice so you won't miss an episode. Also, please share within your networks of family, friends, and colleagues as appropriate so I can grow the audience and the movement to promote a culture of activity. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to my discussion with Peter Norton. been studying the historical relationship to our streets for for quite some time now. Based on what you've observed, what advice or guidance do you have for somebody out there in their neighborhoods that are looking to make a difference in their neighborhoods, on their city streets, in their communities? So I think there's some really valuable lessons from history for anybody interested in something a little different than the status quo we all grew up with here. I think the first thing that is worth paying attention to is the fact that the message we get that driving is normal, that other modes of transportation are peripheral, that cycling is just for recreation, that everybody prefers to drive, that our driving system is the product of expert engineering. All of these messages look a lot less definite in the light of history. In fact, if you could magically go back a hundred years, you'd be amazed, people would be amazed at how pedestrian friendly and to an extent bike friendly and public transit especially friendly our cities right here were. And changing that was not just the product of a mass preference. Preferences had something to do with it, but it had a lot more to do with people competing to advance their agendas. So that's why the book was called Fighting Traffic. People were fighting for their different preferred ways of, of getting around. And people who wanted to sell cars, quite understandably, had an interest in making cities car-friendly and in convincing people that that was the best way to get around. So somebody today interested in changing that status quo will quickly find that the status quo carries with it a kind of legitimacy where people will say, well, this is how we do it. This is the official way. 
And history can help people question that. And this is incidentally how all of our reforms happen, right? So civil rights, feminism, equal rights, all of these efforts to redress a oppressive status quo depend on a revisiting of history because history is written by the winners. And when history is written, it tends to justify the status quo because, of course, the status quo is what the winners achieved. So we have to revisit history, first of all, and it's inspiring to see what was possible. It was possible to, to walk, take a streetcar just about anywhere in an American city 100 years ago, and that, that changed radically. I think a second thing that somebody interested in changing the status quo can take from that is that unimaginable change is possible. So it's fascinating to me to watch what pe- watch people writing letters to the editor in 1920 about their city, and it's quite clear that the status quo we have today is completely unimaginable to these people. They'll say things like, "Hey, how come I can't walk wherever I want to anymore?" Well, you know, this is this has become normal to us. And within the memory of many people in your audience will be a radical transformation in the, let's say, the normality of smoking. So smoking was ubiquitous in our childhoods. It was, it was all around. It was very normal. And a sign of that normality was ashtrays in restaurants at every, at every table, uh, ashtrays at every conference table at work. And there was a sort of expectation that this is going to be normal. I mean, people were in buses smoking, on airplanes smoking, and so on. And if you can imagine the point of view of somebody, say, 60 years ago, confronted with what we live in now, it would be an unimaginable reality. That's a a radical change. Yes, you can still smoke if you choose to smoke today. But now the default assumption is you need to make sure you're not making a nuisance out of yourself to other people. And you won't find automatic accommodation for this everywhere you go. So this is, I think, a really instructive example because the interest was in public health. And we have very much the same kind of uh, value at stake in transportation. And if we could change the status quo beyond imagination with smoking, as I think we did, then we can change the status quo beyond imagination with uh, transportation, with mobility, with getting around. And in fact, we can even learn specifically from those techniques. The techniques that diminished smoking and incidentally diminished the premature death due to smoking, right? Uh, Those techniques can be applied and, and to some degree are being applied to getting us to a more healthful, sustainable and equitable status quo in mobility as well. Yeah, both good points. And referring back to the first bit of advice you were giving, it it occurred to me that part of the challenge that we have, at least within the movement, is especially early on, we're referring to anything not automobile mobility as alternative transportation. It was like (laughs) we had an identity crisis. It's like rather than saying, hey, the natural, the more natural, the most natural, the, you know, human powered movement. And this this reminds me that we used to speak of a a kind of person called a non-smoker, right? It's the word is not really you don't hear it much anymore because we think of people as there are smokers and there's everybody else and. I think the common denominator here, the, the thing these two these two uh, phenomena have in common, is we have notions about what is normal, and sometimes we confer the status of normality on something that it doesn't really deserve it. So car dependency doesn't deserve to be considered normal. Car dependency is expensive. Car dependency is unhealthful. It's unsustainable, and the list goes on. People will hear. Uh, say that and they may mishear it to mean that we want to ban cars or something like that. And it's just to say we don't want to be dependent on them for every need that we have. So if we're going to overcome car dependency, I think we have to begin by questioning the normality of it because it's still, even right now, 
got that status, that, that privileged status of normality that gives it a, a kind of unfair advantage. And a symptom of that unfair advantage is that anything besides driving a car is an alternative. And that automatically means that uh, they're not the normal way to go. Yeah. So earlier I mentioned uh, transit systems over there in the Netherlands and the, and the fact that they were so beautifully integrated as systems and, and sort of alluded to the fact that I was really excited prior to the pandemic about the potential of seeing uh, some positive steps in, in terms of mass transit in the United States. Neither one of us have a crystal ball, <laughs> but I, I'm very concerned about the status of, of transit given the close proximity to other people and whether folks will be quite hesitant to get back on the bus, so to speak. Yes, this is a, you're right. We don't know where this will, will go. My hope, and, and I'm sure yours as well, is that as COVID-19 recedes and it's safe to be in proximity to get again with people, whether that's a matter of months or maybe a year or more, we will recover and transit will recover. I'm concerned, as I'm sure you are, that we keep transit going over this difficult period because uh, if, if, this, if some of the systems fail or, or shut down, getting them going again would be much harder than just sustaining them through this difficult period. But we had more, much more public transit in our cities during the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic, which was also deadlier and was also communicated the same way. Uh, in other words, the, the same mechanism by which people get sick with COVID-19 is how they got sick from Spanish flu. And, and that was understood. So there were uh, streetcar systems where passengers were expected to wear face masks. The conductor or motorman had a face mask. And they did come back, uh, not, not for as long as we'd like, because they then succumbed to other pressures. So, you know, I, I leave it to the, the uh, epidemiologists to tell us how close and how soon we can be close together again. But I think the priority has to be to keep these systems going until that day comes when we can all be back on them again. Because even if we're all walking more and riding bikes more, and perhaps using other kinds of micromobility more, we will need transit systems with large capacities uh, running again. And if we recognize that need, then we, we can make that possible. Yeah. It also uh, harkens back in my mind to some other changes that we'd seen just recently prior to uh, all this happening. Two, three years ago, we saw the introduction of micromobility devices and a sort of a mini version of reclaiming our streets by people on other types of devices. I I any thoughts along those lines? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, micromobility is... is especially e-scooters and so on, are, are, have been controversial. But they don't have to be if we recognize that it's essential to make sure that people who are walking, people who are in wheelchairs, people who need the sidewalks, they need those. Uh, as uh, I mean, you, you noted you don't even have a sidewalk where you are. And where we do have them, they're too narrow. So we should expect there to be objections from people on foot uh, or, or using a wheelchair if there are e-scooters on their sidewalks. But they don't have to be on our sidewalks. If we have streets with reasonable speed limits, we don't need 40 mile an hour, 35 mile an hour speed limits on every city street. I mean, we can have streets where people are driving 20 miles an hour. If we had more of those kinds of streets, that would be safer for the people on the e-scooter. It would still enable people who want to drive to drive. The experts, the policymakers, the engineers have over-prioritized speed as if going fast was more important than the duration of the trip. Because, you know, as we all, all learned in school, the time to your destination is a product of your speed and your distance. So as the experts all prioritized speed, inevitably distance grew as a result. 
So then speed became less a luxury than, and more of a necessity. But if you prioritize duration of trip rather than speed, then it's possible for proximity to be another reason why you get to your destination sooner. And proximity, you know, there's, there's a, a self-reinforcing effect that kicks in because as you reduce speed limits and make it possible for people to get to their destinations on foot, on a bike, on a scooter, then because those modes of travel are much less spatially intensive, things can be closer together, right? One of the reasons our stuff is so far apart is that cars need a lot of room on the road and at the parking lot when they get to the destination. And if you put those things together, pretty soon everything's too far apart for you to get to them by anything except by a car, even by a bus, because buses need density to be cost effective. So if we stop favoring speed to a fault, which we've been doing for decades, then it's we start making other ways of practical and timely destination arrival possible. Yeah. And it, it prioritization immediately makes me think of the fact that we we prioritize the wrong things. We're, we're not prioritizing the number of people in a finite area. We, we have other measures, whether it's level of service or, or other types of things like that. The other thing that popped into my head is that as we look towards uh, what we call the infrastructure of, you know, what our streetscapes look like, I, I think it behooves us to be looking at things as mobility lanes may, you know, prioritized or segregated based on prevailing speed and a mobility lane, a, for instance, a protected or separated mobility lane might be something that has a wheelchair in it, has a, a scooter in it, has a bike in it, which may or may not be an electric assist bike. Also, back to hearkening back to the Netherlands, they're they're seeing the demand of you know maybe even having a slow lane and a faster lane uh, within the mobility you know the personal mobility device uh, infrastructure. Yeah, the kind of versatility you're talking about is exactly what we need. We've we've been building our systems on the assumption that the only way you're going to get anywhere is in is by one mode. And what you're describing, uh, and so, some of that, what you were describing was new to me, is a very attractive alternative whereby you enable versatility, adaptability, flexibility, balance. All of those I think we need to do better on, and all of those will give people choices. We come from a culture that celebrates freedom of choice. And I think that's a strong card in our hands we can offer people choices. You can drive if you want to drive, but we can give people really attractive alternatives to that. Yeah. And freedom such a wonderful word, right? It's uh, exactly. it, it harkens back to the concept of, oh, oh, by the way, do we have freedom of mobility for all ages and abilities, even for those individuals that may not be old enough to drive or potentially even are beyond their driving age or for whatever reason are unable to drive a motor vehicle, an automobile, do they have freedom of movement of being able to use their own two feet or roll or stroll in, in any mechanism or manner and, and have an all ages and abilities infrastructure environment to be able to make that happen? Exactly. One of the, the sort of cruel ironies of the automobile is the more you accommodate it, the more you make it difficult to get around by any other means, uh, which is less true of the, of the non-automobile modes. So you can accommodate pedestrians without disaccommodating others. You can accommodate cyclists without, without inconveniencing others. With the automobile, we just don't have that kind of choice. When you make it really easy to drive everywhere, you're going to make it really hard to do anything else. Yeah. One of the things that you also mentioned earlier was sort of referencing speed and you, you laid out the, the situation of that speed, that 40, 40 mile an hour speed. And, and it harkens back to one of the other trends that we're seeing currently is some of the cities are dealing with the situation, not with necessarily 
pop-up infrastructure, but they're looking at opportunities of identifying neighborhoods and communities and street networks where they can overnight, and Boulder, Colorado just did this, implementing a 20 is plenty approach. Yes, thumbs up for that because it it was something that had been in the works for well over a year, but this situation had really prompted it to happen. Obviously, the design speed of the streetscape, it will have to to catch up because it's not enough just to slap a sign up and say, hey, the new speed limit is 20 miles per hour in this residential area and then have the overlay of enforcement to try to make that happen. There needs to be some traffic calming aspects of it. But what's interesting from my perspective is that rethinking of what that streetscape is for and all about. Any comments along those lines? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, way to go, Boulder. And I'm very heartened by this trend. Now, you said something extremely important, which is this can't be achieved strictly by enforcement alone. That's especially important in our country where we have populations who have learned with good cause to distrust enforcement, people of color who have been subjected to an undue share of this enforcement burden. And there's distrust, there's some ugly history connected to this. And so if we depend on enforcement, as our primary means of achieving areas where where the speeds are lower, we're inviting trouble. But you, as you say, it's not the only way to do it. You can design places such that you get the, the preferred speeds. The, the Netherlands is an excellent example. And we have some good examples here too. The right traffic calming techniques can make the neighborhood more attractive. They can also slow vehicles down at the same time. So it is possible to get these slower speeds, and it's also possible to get them without antagonizing drivers too much, because as long as they still can get to the higher speed roads, I think it's a a doable ask to say in residential areas, in some neighborhoods, we're going to make it 20 miles an hour. So with the right approach, a sensitive approach, one that recognizes that enforcement is not the only way to slow vehicles down, that could offer some very promising possibilities. I think one of the most promising of them is we, I think we'll be pleasantly surprised in these areas at how much people turn to things like cycling, walking, e-scooters, e-bikes, and so on. Because a lot of people who would like to use those modes drive just because they don't feel safe or it's unpleasant uh, doing this in the vicinity of fast vehicles. As soon as those vehicles slow down, the noise goes down, the sense of threat goes down, the necessity for high alertness goes down, and all of those make it more inviting to do other things. And then we discover that all these, these people we thought preferred to drive, well, some of them actually welcome the alternatives under those conditions. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a matter of uh, getting out of the habit because it is such a reflexive habit to, to uh, just jump into the car and go. Peter, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that is, is something that you're working on or something that is in your in your mind right now or, or maybe even something that you're uh, uh, you know working through with your, your students there uh, at the university? Well, my most recent work has been really on two things. One is autonomous vehicles, but we've talked about that. But I I just want to stress that technology alone never solves anything, that technology is a tool. Tools are useful things, but they're useful to people and they are for human purposes. And we have, there's a risk and it comes in part from technology salesmanship, I think we could call it, where technology is sometimes presented as if it is the solution rather than as the tool we need to make the solutions that we choose. It's a really important distinction. It kind of seems obvious, but when you look at the way autonomous vehicles and smart cities are sold to us, I think you'll, you'll find that, that very often that distinction gets lost. And I think it's a crucial distinction. And I think When we get that distinction right, it helps us to recognize 
there's a great many tools that we have had in our hands for decades or even centuries where if we put them to work, they have the advantage of simplicity, the advantage of low cost, the advantage of feasibility, such that we don't have to wait for the AI geniuses to deliver us. We can welcome what they have to offer us, but we have a lot of things that we can do already for ourselves. The second thing that I've been working on a lot recently, which I mentioned as well, is that even in our more recent history, which is not in the book Fighting Traffic, I'm finding that at the height of the era of automobile enthusiasm, 50s, 60s, there was a persistent questioning of this. It's a questioning that's been lost from our historical record because it came from voices who didn't have the advantages of having large audiences. These were local people organized locally who got some local attention. It's all over the local newspapers of the era, but who never had the national influence of the big interest groups that have really dominated the historical record that we grew up with. And their voices will can hearten us that we have always questioned the status quo. There was never a year that passed between the Model T and April 2020 when we didn't have people, and I'm talking lots of people from all walks of life, vocally saying, wait a minute, we, we don't want car domination. We'd like cars as useful tools and we want to have alternatives. We want to have other ways of getting around as well. We have always had that questioning, and I think we need to remember that because it helps us normalize the kind of active, healthful mobility that you and I would like to see more of and that millions of others would too. Yeah, well said. And I think that's a a wonderful place uh, for us to to bring this to a close. Peter, thank you so very much for, for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. John, as a fan, it's just a thrill. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Peter Norton. Please pick up a copy of his extraordinary book, Fighting Traffic, and check out all the links we've provided in the show notes. Future episodes in the queue include Holly Bachman-Bennett, Amanda Popkin, Lynn Richards, Jeff Wood, Alyssa Walker, and a joint episode with Maggie Wattups and Dom Nazi. So be sure to stay tuned. Well, that's all for now, folks. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.